Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. Hey, what's up, everybody? It is episode 213, and after a month-long hiatus, uh, we're back. We're recording this live on August 8th, 2021. This is Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome, and I'm joined today by my good friend and yours, Mr. Blake Arnstorf. How's everybody doing? It's a good good time to be back. I, I am glad to be back, too. I was telling uh, you in the pre-show, it's been um, you know not too long since you and I talked. I mean, we talk every week. Uh, but it's been a month since we've almost recorded a podcast. There were a couple planned absences there and then um, a not planned absence last week. Uh, but we're back, you know, and uh, if you haven't already, check out last week's Human Factors Hangout. We actually caught up with um, with uh, Rose Figueroa, who was uh, on the show last for our uh, HFES 2020 recap. Um, and we talked about the billionaire space race and what it means for human factors uh, and uh, some forensic human factors topics. It was it was a good time uh, and it was a lot of fun. We might do more of those in the future. So stick around. Pay attention to all of our social stuff, uh, and you might be tuned in to when those actually happen. Speaking of socials, uh, we only have one news story here on the show each week, but if you want to be informed of what other cool, interesting stories are going on around the Human Factors world, we started posting a little bit more on those channels uh, for some other news stories that don't quite make the cut, so uh, be sure to check us out over there. And I also mentioned HFES in terms of upcoming conference coverage. I think uh, we we will have some coverage uh, of this year's event. Um, in what capacity we're still deciding. I think for me with uh, and and Blake too. I think you know with some of these uh, COVID variants out there, Lambda, Delta, Delta Plus, the <laughs> new subscription service. Great. Uh, I don't know if it makes a whole lot of sense for us to go. I mean, uh, you know, I have a young son who's unvaccinated because he can't be. And so um, just don't know how much sense it makes to go in person. But there is a virtual component. So we will provide some coverage at least, I think. Uh, But with that, I mean, it's Human Factors News. That's why you're here. That's right. This is the part of the show all about Human Factors news. This is where we talk about everything related to the field of Human Factors. This week, we got some aviation and transportation in there. Uh, Blake, what is the story this week? Well, it's literally about a flying car. So the term (laughs) flying car is definitely a bit of a misnomer. In order to meet regulation guidelines, many of the vehicles currently in development are more like manned drones or vertical takeoff and landing aircraft or VTOL aircraft. But a prototype just achieved a major milestone that actually fits the description of a flying car. So a Slovakian company known as Klein Vision recently completed its inaugural inner city flight between Nitra and Bratislava airports. So with over 142 successful landings and 40 hours of test flights under its belt, Klein is convinced that this third prototype is going to take a leap into the concept stage. So the current prototype is equipped with a 160-horsepower BMW engine, awesome, with a fixed propeller and, and a ballistic parachute. What else do you need on a flying car, I guess? 
And in reality, getting to the very end of being able to actually have these cars flying in everyday life is still going to be a big challenge. The company will have to tread a fine line between being a light aircraft and a more substantial vehicle with health and safety precautions built in. And however, there are signs that regulators are coming around to the idea of flying cars. In the U.S. alone, the FAA, or Federal Aviation Administration, recently granted Terra Fuega's roadable airplane a special certificate in the light sport category uh making it legal for actual little flights so nick this is pretty wild because when i saw the the name of the story i was like okay cool air car maybe it's just you know something different for a a flying car concept but this looks so much like a car with wings it's kind of insane to look at This is what I think of when I think of a flying car, and I will kind of preface this conversation that if you are uh, listening along or watching us live, open up another tab and check out the video from KleinVision. This is uh, an insane video where you can watch this car literally take flight uh, and transform from a car to a plane, uh, and it hides it pretty well. I mean, you can still tell, but like, it's drivable on the road too. It's kind of insane how how compact they can get this thing. Um, and so, yeah, I think this story should act as a springboard for us to talk about the future of transportation, what it means for flying vehicles, um, and what this means for transportation in general. I mean, we talked about last time you and I met, Blake. We talked about transportation uh, as it pertains to speed and how that impacts various levels of socioeconomic status and how varying levels of sprawl are influenced by speed. And I think this goes perfectly, like, kind of dovetails nicely with that, right? Um, it definitely does, yeah. Yeah, so there's a lot going on with this story. Uh, I think first, let's just get, I, I mean, we kind of already got our reactions here. This thing is awesome. Um, <laughs> I want one. Is that is that a reaction? I So honestly, the part that I was most <laughs> stoked about is in the video it's I'll try and do my best to describe it, but I was really interested in what does it actually look like to have car controls plus enough, you know, different controls for your aircraft. And it's even got like in the car mode, it's got, you know, the typical stuff that you see in most a lot of modern cars. So anything that's like, you know, come out from 2020 on has like a video camera set up. So it's got, you know, cameras on all sides, which if you think about it, makes a whole lot of sense for a driver that now has, you know, a much different type of roof and less of an ability to see what's exactly behind them because you're not really you don't really have any kind of rear view mirror in the same sense you've now got you know air pl- parts of an airplane and a single propeller in the back and then in the case of like how does it translate to being an aircraft it looks like there's a lot of different gauges and even almost what looks like an iPad for navigation and things like that um, that are hanging inside the the cockpit slash just you know, regular everyday driver car. So the design inside looks really sleek and it seems like they've really taken a lot of care in terms of the components that they knew they had to have probably for like safety and regulation compliance, but also like bringing some modern feel that you find in most, you know, drivers today. Yeah. We'll talk about the, uh, the safety aspect of it in a minute here. I'm trying to pull this up for anyone who's watching along with us. Um, just so that way they can kind of see what this is. So <laughs> we're looking at this flying car. Um, like Blake said, there's a lot of things that look different about it in the sense that you're not getting that rear view that you might get in a car because you got plane parts back there. Um, it, although it does resemble a car. 
And um, with the displays, you can see there, it's very streamlined. Um, and, you know, we can talk about displays too, because there are different displays that are necessary for flight than there are for um, just like uh, being on the road, right? For, for the road, you need a speedometer, you need uh, very, very little information actually to make a, a informed decision about driving. Uh, with flight, you add a third dimension to that mix, and so you need an altimeter, you need um, various status warnings for collision um, detection, you need uh, various systems on board, and this all comes with classification of aircraft too, right? Um, I think they're going for a light aircraft class, so they're, they're held to different standards than something like, you know, a jet airplane. Um, so I... I, I love the design. I love the uh, the the. Um, I wish I could show you the maiden flight, but like this thing is so slick looking, and that's that's a concept. But this is the actual thing. You can see uh, in the thumbnail for this episode. You can kind of see what it looks like. Um, yeah, absolutely insane. I don't know. What do you want to? What this is a wide open discussion, Blake. We wrote a couple notes here. It's fairly open. What do you want to talk about? So I think the thing that's really interesting to me is I don't understand you know, the, the end goal for the company, because I think the way this is kind of coming off in the, in the article, and maybe this is the intent, I'm not really sure, but it feels like you're like, people are going to be able to buy flying cars where in the reality is, is it's, it's still probably a rated pilot that is flying this thing. And so it sounds like it's more likely to be some kind of service that allows you to use these kind of things. Like maybe they'll, they'll take, you know, four people instead of two or whatever it is. Because uh, one thing to note, and, and if you watch the video, you'll see this. They don't showcase this as much on their website. But once you, like, see the pilot in the cockpit setting so they're getting ready to take off, you'll notice, like, they've got a headset on. Because they got to stay in some kind of constant contact with some, you know, ATC in the in wherever they're going to fly to. Uh, now, in this case, you're flying from airport to airport, so you definitely have to stay in, you know, pretty close contact with whatever ATCs you're going in between. Um, but at the end of the day, this is not like something you're going to have as a daily driver necessarily, uh, unless you become a pilot in some sense. Uh, but the concept is really cool because I, I think for a long time. I assumed like flying cars would never really be a thing. Like it would just be, it would turn into something else. And this is literally a flying car. This is, this is a plane with four wheels uh, yeah. that turns into a car. I mean, um, yeah, it's it's kind of insane to like get that cockpit view from behind the pilot. Uh, and yeah, they are controlling this fully um, manually, right? There's no automation. Or there's probably automated systems on board. But it looks like this flight itself is not on autopilot. It's not a self takeoff, uh, uh, not an automated takeoff and landing. It is the pi this pilot is doing it. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I think I think uh, an interesting bit that um, you brought up was the constant communication with air traffic control. I think there's got to be some like major restructuring, and we talked about this a little bit with drones too, right? Like. Uh, drones that occupy certain airspace may need to communicate with other systems like air traffic control or um, other supervisory control systems that are that are talking and communicating with all these things uh, that are in the air so that way they don't collide with each other and injure anybody on board or anybody on the ground, right? Um, and I think that goes for this too. There's going to be some new level of... Uh, if if this became commonplace, 
there'd be some new level of air traffic control um, because you'd have this surge of people who want to get their pilot's license so that way they could afford one of these. And it seems like, you know, it, it's expensive, but affordable for some. Uh, and we can talk about the socioeconomic uh, implications here like we did last week. But let's well, talk about then, air traffic control. I mean, that would be cool, right? Because it be coming with being a pilot and being trained, you're going to have to figure out how to interact appropriately with air traffic control. And so you're going to have to go through that to even get your you know, your pilot's license. So it, I think in that regard, it almost still keeps things pretty safe. Um, unlike, uh, unlike the introduction of the drone where you're now dealing with kind of more automated systems and then you have potentially somebody controlling multiple drones at once and all the kind of chaos that can come with that now it's been solved pretty well in some instances and i know the faa has worked a long time on regulations for different class of airspace and drones but in this specific instance i think there's a, a lot of value potentially for it uh because it's going to keep you know that human in the loop the whole time and it's still going to be the same thing now the problem becomes is like you said although like the classes of airspace definitely exist you're going to now have a lot more traffic in those lower classes of airspace. Um, I'm assuming because this is talking about like an inner city flight between two really small airports. So now you have, you know, airplanes like just biplanes and things like that. They're that doing commuter traffic all the time. And now we're talking about, you know, potentially a bunch of cars that are also taking off at the same time, um, which brings its own kind of risks, I guess, uh, because now you have to make sure that everybody is following all the same rules within the airport's guidelines as well. So it does it does lend itself to not really being a, a consumer product, if you will, uh, but some kind of service-driven product, which to me, in some ways, and I'd love to get your opinion on this, Nick, it begs the question of really why do this? Because it's it's not necessarily going to just be something most people can use and do. It's going to have to become nearly like an airplane. Yeah, and I even if it's democratizing uh, flight, right? I think with um, I I'm I'm trying to wrap in. Uh, so Mateo in our chat right now posted an article about how cars will uh, flying cars will undermine democracy and environment. They go into these points about um, scale, right? About if if billionaires get their hands on these, then um, you know it's just another toy. However, if this becomes more of a, a of a widespread thing, then there's going to have to be some serious structural issues that um, need to occur to help mitigate some of these, you know, like air traffic lanes and uh, regulations, so that way you don't fly too close to somebody. Um, when you couldn't take a long time to do that, because I know like kind of the struggle with a lot of drone stuff has been just like it just takes a lot of time to test this stuff and get it right because it it can cost lives if you get it wrong in a, it, in a pretty large scale way. Yeah, imagine these flying cars colliding in the middle of the sky and just coming down and raining well, that, raining planes. <laughs> that well, that's the part that I think is the most scary, right? So an accident with an airplane. There's few of them, there's fewer of them in the sky. It doesn't happen as often. But now, if we scale it up and they're smaller and they're cars in lower classes of airspace, it's it's not even just like the accident happening being bad, but it's more of like the the kind of collateral damage that happens from a car falling out of the sky, um, even you know over the middle of anywhere, like an interstate or anything like that. So it has a lot of a lot of work to be done in terms of figuring out the logistics of it, which I thought was really interesting that in the U.S. they're 
there there seems to be some company that's getting a little bit of a legal leeway like in terms of like the light sport category that Terra Fuega has put together for this like roadable plane of theirs. But that seems hyper specific for a purpose, not necessarily like potentially a commercial utility, which I think is really what Klein's vision is because they want to keep building on this prototype concept. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting is that we're in a space right now where this is not commonplace. And, you know, the first automobiles were a luxury item and, you know, everyone else horse-drawn carriage. Uh, And so I think that if this does become more commonplace, it will be a billionaire's toy to begin with. Um, However... I feel like we know enough now at this point about aviation, about automation, um, and about safety in general that we can implement things from a human factor's perspective that will help reduce the likelihood that, um, you know, anything bad will happen. Like, let's just say, for example, um, you have some automated systems on board that take care of a lot of the pilot things for you, right? Like, let's say you uh, have an autopilot mode. You go to a uh, an air airport, and you basically put it in autopilot mode, and it takes off and lands for you. You do nothing in flight. All the controls are disabled um, unless you need to hit an emergency switch for, like, a parachute or something. Uh, I think doing it that way, ha- relinquishing your control to an automated system that can do it better than a human, in some cases, right? There are some pretty outstanding issues with automation and how if you're not kept in the loop or if automation interprets something poorly like how the f-18 killed its pilot almost go listen to that episode (laughs) that (laughs) was the most wild story ever um so flipping that thing there are certainly instances in which automation can backfire and misfire and um end poorly however generally once those things are ironed out i feel like point a to point b flight is going to be much more easily accessible for the common person as long as they can afford it. And then, um, you know, you have, like, it might even open it up to a a different role, right? Like, let's say you don't have your pilot's license, um, and in order to use these automated systems, you need to relinquish your control to somebody that maybe you pay a service for, right? Like, hey, you pay another operator to control your vehicle from the air traffic control tower while you're taking off, and it puts it on an automated path, and then somebody else lands it for you. You pay a service, and somebody who's trained can do it with the onboard system. It's almost like them flying a drone. Um, And, of course, they would probably have to get certified in different ways because they are then responsible for human lives on a drone. Um, And it gets messy, but if we build for that infrastructure in the future, uh, it could be really promising for safety, right? I think... I, I don't think it's uh, impossible to implement something like this. I just think that if we do it, we have to do it right, and we have to think about all the human factors implications from from the point of purchase, purchasing this thing to uh, you know the, the end of their final flight. Absolutely, yeah. I think well, I think what's really interesting about the whole concept is aviation is a great test bed for this kind of, like automation right. in 
you know, and keeping humans in the loop of it and even letting them be a little bit outside of it, depending on the type of pilot operations you're dealing with. And so there's probably a lot of great existing technology. Now, we just brought up or you just brought up a an instance, of course, of automation going wrong in the F-18. There's plenty of those that exist that stick out like a sore thumb because of the reality of how horrific they can be. Uh, but you know, at a, at scale, it seems like there's a lot of great automation already cooked into a lot of giant aircraft. So it's a great opportunity to continue using what, what's been learned from the lessons learned perspective of engineering, human factors, and also just, you know, CRM, so crew resource management studies and things like that. Um, I love the idea. Maybe it's because I want to see more kind of like drone operations or like how operation centers can work with drones um, and the challenges that brings from a tech standpoint and from the human factors standpoint. Uh, but I think providing services for people like that, that allows them to, if they can, if they can afford either the car or the service, great. But then it keeps them safe and also keeps everybody else safe should they make a mistake or should something go wrong in the air and they're not, you know, aviation trained for, you know, handling an emergency or whatever it may be. So I love the idea of this becoming some sort of service. Uh, and if it if it caters to the ultra rich at the beginning, I think ultimately it that will change over Good. time. If, if we'll see it, I don't know. But it's just like what you brought up with cars. Cars were originally some luxury item, and now it's kind of a ubiquitous thing in some ways. Uh, but I don't know. Again, I have a hard time really seeing the utility of this. I love the concept because I think it's fun to put a BMW engine in a car and then make it fly. But from it, like, how does it, you know, change the landscape of, you know, technology or the world? I'm unsure of its impact. Well, I, I here, here's one impact for you. Um, you live in a metropolitan area. Uh, we both do. Uh, where, you know, flight is not as crucial to us, right? Like maybe I could fly down to San Diego um, with one of these things. I don't know what the range is. Um, but, you know, like that might be one thing is it makes easier to see family. It makes it easier to conduct business. It makes it easier to personalize your trips. So like think of uh, the person in rural Utah who like, uh, is it takes forever to get to Salt Lake City Airport, and they have family in another state where it might be inconvenient to drive that far, right? Like from Utah to I don't know Georgia or something. Uh, you know, without them getting to, or I guess maybe even even less than that, right? Let's say Utah to Montana, right? And if you're unfamiliar with geography, look at a U.S. map. Um, they're pretty close, but far enough to where it's inconvenient to drive and too close to fly. If you have family there, it might be worth it, especially if you have a field where you could take off and land at each location. Um, which is kind of crucial in this case for this specific type of car they've built. For, they need that space. Yeah, for this type of car. And I do want to touch on that too, right? We know of two different types. One is basically a glorified drone uh, that has you know quadcopters on it or multiple uh, uh, rotary uh, copters on it that that basically acts as a helicopter brings you up puts you down this one seems like it could be more longer distance flight 
Um, and so that's why I'm kind of mentioning these further distances, right? Where like a drone might be inner city travel. Uh, and so anyway, I, I can think of that as a use case, right? Where you maybe, um, maybe you live on a farm and you have an animal emergency and, you know, there's no doctors around and you need to fly to someplace close, right? You put your sheep in the passenger seat and like go, right? (laughs) Uh, I don't know. Like, uh, I love it. Just call in a helicopter at that point. But um, I don't know. I can think of a couple use cases where this might be useful for people. Uh, it would it would certainly help close the gap between rural country, you know, areas and the city area because then it becomes that much easier to get to. If you could just land on a tarmac and pull right off of it into the city. Um, you know, you'll have to compete with all the passenger planes and you probably won't get priority. But, you know, if you're you landed a municipal airport um, and that's the beauty of this is that you could kind of take off and land as long as there's space. And at a municipal airport, there's you know, it depends on the municipal airport, but um, you could probably find some availability in one of those. Right. Or if there's an opening somewhere. And that's why uh, communication with ATC is crucial because they can help get you to where you need to be. Um, and it kind of opens up uh you know different different pathways that you can take um yeah i don't know um uh is there are there any there's i'm trying to think here so there's a ton of different points that we could make about this um are there any other ones that you want to touch on before we uh move on so i i do love the idea you did bring up which is this it could be a way of making things more connected because we've talked a little bit about that in the past and i mean the rural to city kind of flight that could be that could have a large impact on people's lives um both in the in the positive and the negative but i mean if you could imagine instead of building a giant airport in or like trying to connect an airport with like a small municipal one or something like that if you could just throw a tarmac down with a you know, five of these cars that could fly back and forth that could, you know, change a lot of people's lives or make, you know, right. services more accessible to them. Um, and it also could be test beds for, you know, technology companies like this that want to get into more of like the flying car game, if you will. Um, and I'm sure there are different types of services like this that would be, you know, useful and interesting to go through. I think one part of it that would be hard to keep track of, and maybe this is getting a little too outside the realm, but one thing that I know when you're a pilot, um, I don't necessarily, I don't know the exact hours, but there's some limitation to when you can fly. And like, if you've flown like X amount in the, in the most recent future, tracking that with people could be hard to do with some of these, like, if, especially if this is a car that belongs to someone, it's not necessarily like a, a pilot that has it or a service that has it. So like the fatigue aspect of trying to fly one of these, um, if you're like really tired could have a really you know big impact on how somebody's able to operate it. Cause I mean, I, I know it's silly that we're talking about flying cars and that kind of like seems so Jetsons like as dated as that makes me sound. But at the end of the day, like this is something with wings that you're having to, you know, take down, strap on and then go into the air. And I mean, it's attached with a ballistic parachute. 
so there's just a, there's still like a lot of training aspects that would have to go into getting this thing ready. Because can you imagine showing up to the tarmac? This is the first, you bought this car, let's say, and now you've got to attach the wings and make sure that the rotors are all ready to go for on the propeller and everything. Like I would have no idea how to make sure this thing was safe before I started trying to fly in it. Read the instruction manual. You got it. Yeah, right. <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, right now it seems like a hobbyist game, right? Like, it, it seems like unless there's somebody regularly maintaining these, um, then it's it's going to be a hobbyist type thing where you own this this device, this vehicle that can take you from point A to point B. Um, I want to talk about, because I, I think a lot of the stuff that we're talking about here kind of dances around this question. I want to talk about it. Uh, you know, there's ride-sharing services. And I see this as a great, uh, a great way to democratize flight. Um, you know, we talked about sort of the accessibility of rural to uh, city. And if all you need is like a little landing strip for these types of aircraft, you could have five or six in an area, have an Uber or Lyft competitor or something like that, you know, regularly maintaining them. Um, and so, uh if, if you have some sort of regular maintenance, and I would imagine it's kind of uh, mandated by the FAA in some regard, right, uh, to where you are regularly checking these things out, um, then you could have, you know, flights from from basically anywhere in the country to anywhere in the country with, uh, you know, it, it's that last mile travel that we uh, talk about a lot of the time. It's, um, you know, when you land in a major city, to get from the airport to your destination, um, it, it takes a lot of effort to like get the rental car and, and go to the hotel and purchase parking and get into the hotel. Um, but what about the other way, right? What if you need to go, what if you need to go rural? Um, then it becomes not last mile, but it then becomes last 20 miles. And if you were to just hop into one of these ride sharing services that took off from that same airport that you just landed at, throw your cargo in the trunk, take off and land in the country. Like that would be life changing for a lot. And, um, you know, you might see more development around some of these tarmacs that pop up, you know, in the country. And then you might have more cities, more, more spread out, uh, country, you know, like, I don't know. It, it just seems like it's ripe for the, uh, ride sharing kind of experience because then you have, not only you don't you have like the automation taking care of everything you have somebody regularly maintaining these things um and it kind of absolves you of responsibility if anything goes wrong you'll be dead absolutely yeah but you're not responsible for it i mean that's kind of <laughs> like i don't i don't know how i mean how sick would it be if you needed like let's say nick needed to go to san diego for just a day and if, like these bird scooters, you could go just hop in one of yeah. these cars, and it was just, like, you could drive the car, maybe the car's even got automation in it, but the flight part is all automated. I mean, even from takeoff to landing, you're just, you're chilling. And then you can drive to wherever you need to go, depending on whatever airport you land in, and then do the things you need to do throughout the day, get back in the car, let it fly you home, and then drive to drive and do your last mile home like there could be a lot of really cool opportunity 
um, for events like that, like having a parking lot full of these cars that you can just let people rent. And of course, there's a lot of technology issues you'd have to resolve and a, a fair amount of trust you'd be putting in these, you know, giant flying cars. Uh, but you're, you're right. There could, I don't know, it could provide, you know, openings for just different like business things that you want to do or like i don't know meeting people that you don't see all the time right uh, so it has a lot of interesting aspects to it for sure and i i love that you brought the last mile back into it because yeah it could change how people you know went about their day because i know my old man he spent most of his life you know on an airplane and then having to go get a rental car and then driving to a hotel and then doing it all over again every day. And so doing something like this now, I mean, it's still a lot of, you know, work on the human and like stress on your body, but having kind of like some of it cut out or cutting out the middleman, if you will, at the very beginning and end could save a lot of time and stress and things like that. Look, man, you and I could sit here and talk about this forever. I want to leave our listeners with a couple of like prompts about this. Right. And then, and then we got to move on um, because we only have so much time in the show. I want to I want to just mention these, and these are like questions to leave you with, right? How would this impact traffic or ride sharing services? We kind of talked about that a little bit. How would this impact wildlife? How would this impact commercial flying industry, if at all? Uh, how environmentally friendly is this type of thing? Yeah, that's a big um, one. Con- consider safety features. What kind of safety features would we need to make sure are in there? Uh, what about the inequality that we talked about last episode with sprawl and affordability of transportation options? Um, you know, how, how fast do these things travel? Uh, thinking, thinking about the speed implications that we talked about last episode. Um, and then city planning, how would this impact city planning? I mean, we talked a little bit about it with putting a tarmac in the middle of the country and maybe having a city build around it. How would it impact other places? So I just think about those. Uh, that's that's what we'll leave you with on these. Um, I just want to thank our patrons for choosing this topic, and thank you to our friends over at Klein Vision and Engadget for our news story this week. If you want to follow along, uh, join me on Office Hours for t- on Tuesdays, where I find these news stories, and we do post the links to all of our original articles on our weekly roundups on our blog, so go check those out. You can also join us on our Slack or Discord for more discussion on these stories. So if you, if you have answers to any of those questions that I left you with, please join us over there and let us know. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to see what's going on in the human factors community right after this human factors cast brings you the best in human factors news interviews conference coverage and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce but we can't do it without you the human factors cast network is 100 listener supported all the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners our patrons are our priority and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our weekly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Minute, a Patreon-only weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. Yes, as always, huge thank you to our patrons and especially our honorary Human Factors cast staff, Michelle Tripp. Patrons like you keep the show running. Keep our lights on. Literally, this is what it looks like without you. And uh, 
Thank you so much for all your continued support. Uh, if you want to become a Patreon uh, patron, there are a different, a couple different tiers for you, as you just heard in the commercial. Um, if you don't want to become a patron, that's fine. There's a couple other ways that you can support the show. We do have a merchandise store if you want one of these sweet sweaters like I have. Uh, you know, it will get cold soon after summer's over. So there's that. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, there's a couple ways that you can support the show, and I'll mention those at the end, but let other people know about us. That always helps. Um, one last fun fact about Patreon. If we have two more Patreons at the Human Factors Engineer level, that allows us to upgrade and get Otter AI, which will basically make our show available to the uh, vision impaired because we do post transcripts with their spotty right now, and if we had that tool... We could then transcribe our audio a little bit more reliably and help those who are, um, did I say vision impaired? I meant <laughs> auditory. Uh, they can't hear. Deaf. Wow. Okay. Anyway, you help them out. Makes it accessible. It. Anyway, let's go ahead and switch gears and get into this next part of the show uh, we like to call... It came from... It came from... Just kidding. That's me. I did that. And it's dumb. I hate it. <laughs> I did say that I would change it, though. Uh, and so I am on the hook for that. But you love that graphic. That's your favorite I, like little slide in and everything. I love to hate it. How about that? Let's switch gears, get to it came from. Uh, this week, it's all over Reddit. Uh, this is part of the show where we search all over the internet to bring you topics the community is talking about. Any topic really is fair game, as long as it relates to the field of human factors, UX, design, psychology, that type of thing, and it encourages discussion among us. So we have three tonight. Um, all one of those is real long. One wow. of those is real long. Well, they're all from the user experience subreddit. We'll get to the uh, the super long one first, because I think this is an interesting perspective that not all of us get to. So let's read it. So it says, how much UX is too much? And this is by... Adam Wintel on the user experience subreddit. Um, I'm going to truncate as I read this. So this is a project manager looking for a user experience professional's perspective. Uh, they've recently brought on board a UX lead onto their team. They're starting to get to the point where they feel that there's an excessive amount of um, UX processes and UX related activities being introduced to the way we work. I'm starting to question it. <laughs> if all the UX processes are worth the time and budget and it's really making a positive impact to the user. We do have KPIs set, but sometimes product changes take a long time to impact KPIs, so it's hard to tell if our process is really making an impact to users. Before the UX lead joined, there was a researcher and two designers on the team. I would fill the role of the team lead for all of them. Um, let's see here. They have some experience with graphic design and UX. So they felt comfortable guiding that team. Uh, talking about their experience here, they'd run surveys when they lacked insights from the user. You do brainstorming workshops. They're basically saying they didn't do as much as this UX lead does. After the UX lead has joined, now the average of two weeks is starting to become eight weeks. And a lot more additional UX activities are being introduced as mandatory steps. Otherwise, quote, we don't know if we're just solving the right thing. End quote. We're working on uh, hunches or your own guesses. We don't have ex evidence of how X will impact the user experience. These are all quotes from the user experience lead. Um, so basically, this project manager, product manager, is asking how much UX is too much. Is this 
UX lead justified in doing all this stuff. Uh, so last point I'll make here is they're the product manager. They personally feel invested in the project, want to be part of the solution. Um, but if they don't accept the proposed solution, uh, even if it's considered a, a change request, they go back to step one. They're stuck in this debate. Um, so basically, bottom line. Anyway, this post is getting a bit long now, but I hope this paints a picture of my situation. Uh, what do I do? Do I accept the solution that's given to me because the UX process has been followed and we don't know for sure if it's right or wrong until the developers build it and it's in the hands of the users? Or what? What? what is, what's going on here, Blake? Wow, this, this there's a lot happening. It seems like, and I think it goes back to what this like this PM that was previously a UX designer said in the beginning. In the in the case of the way they're doing things and the the key performance indicators or KPIs that they're measuring, it takes a lot of time. You can't just release something and tomorrow you know did it have a great impact. The thing I'm not quite understanding is I think that it it does sound like what the UX practitioner or UX person is putting into place may ultimately be helpful and may help things over time, but there hasn't been enough time in place where they've actually, you know, executed the process. It's made it into development and now they're witnessing how users are interacting with it and, you know, how key metrics they have on the application are. I'm a little confused about what meth what methods are being put in place though, that they they're not rapidly understanding the decisions they're making in a like user interacting with it context. Like if they're not doing, you know, lo-fi usability tests or, you know, cognitive walkthroughs or any of that stuff, it sounds like there's a lot of processes going on that keep them away from the users, which I'm not understanding here. Um, and maybe why, and it could be why this PM seems frustrated because they may be feeling like, well, you're putting processes in place but you're making judgments, um, you know, based off of your own experience more so than like our users, our user experience of our product. Uh, but I, I do think there is a key point here. I mean, it, there is a difference between the two roles. And I think at some point, this PM was much more involved in the solutions that the team was coming up with. And I think now they've got kind of a different role. And so it, that can be a hard adjustment to kind of make too. Uh, but at the end of the day, I don't think there's really enough. I, I don't know what the timelines looked like, right? So it may be that they just need to let the process run out and see what the impacts are. Be ready to measure that stuff when, when it makes it into development so that they can actually make an assessment of, is this process working? Is it not? And it may be that there needs to be a discussion had between the PM and the UX lead to say like, okay, I understand that there's a, a need for some different ways of approaching our design problems. Got it. But there's, they have to fall within a, you know, a specific timeline and we can't be going outside of budget. Cause if it's, if it's really like gone from two to two to eight weeks in terms of just getting designs done and we're not really interacting with development throughout that. And it's like a, almost sounds very stovepiped that can be problematic. Um, and, and sometimes you have to reel people in and be like, okay, we only have limited time. What are the best methods we can use to help us give the most, get the most out of the time that we have available to us and the budget that we have. Uh, but Nick, from your perspective, like what, what do you think in here? What, what do you think it, this person should do or could do to kind of correct the situation they're in? So if you're familiar with Reddit, there's a subreddit called, am I the asshole? Um, and basically it's, 
paints a picture of a situation and then the users respond if they are in fact an asshole or not and the, the, the there's a middle ground where everything is shitty here and that is what I'm uh that's what I'm going to respond with on this one I feel like uh there's a lot of miscommunication going on between the UX uh professional and there's a lot of uh misunderstanding by the product manager so I feel like the product manager doesn't quite understand that that is the UX professional's <laughs> job is to gather user research. However, that user experience professional should be communicating what the return on investment is for some of these uh, these processes that they're implementing, right? Say, hey, if we do this methodology, this is what we will get out of it and this is how it will impact our system. Um, I think that that level of communication is not happening right now. I think uh, it seems like this user experience professional is just going on and doing the things that they know, but they're not communicating what the outcomes are or how it will impact the product. Uh, and it seems like they're just kind of going through these um, these hoops to make sure, check the boxes and say, yes, we've done this, we've done that. Uh, and so I think there's a lack of understanding on both sides. And so what I will say in response to this very lengthy question is to focus on communication. I think communication is a huge deal in the professional environment. And if one person is not on board with what the role of somebody else is doing, then there's going to be these types of posts on Reddit where we have to try our best to understand what's going on in this situation but to me, as an outsider looking in, there's a lack of communication between these two roles. And uh, it's causing doubt from the product manager's perspective. Um, and it sounds like the UX professional uh, is not communicating what they're doing, right? I obviously, as a human factors professional, I'm giving the UX professional probably a little bit more leeway here. They probably know what they're doing. They probably uh, have a plan but they're not communicating it. And so what's the deal? They could just also be doing too much. I don't know, right? That's kind of the trick with this situation is we don't know, we don't have the insight into that situation. We can't tell. Um, but yeah, a subtle reminder or not so subtle reminder from Nick to communicate and to make sure that not only what you're doing is communicated, but why you're doing it is communicated and also what you will get out of it is communicated. There's five what questions. There's five questions that you can ask who, what, when, there, where, why. Uh, make sure you're answering all of them when you're communicating with people on your team. Um, I don't know. Anything else, Blake? Yeah, it's, it's definitely a rock and a hard place, right? Because you know that there, there's a lot of methods in the toolbox, UX, HF, and there, you know that there's a best golden path. Like I could do all these cool things. I gotta have a whole, I gotta have a whole lot of impact. And it seems like that's what this new UX lead is trying to do. It's trying to implement real design processes and trying to make sure that from end to end the UX process is done right and it's successful for the product. But like you're saying, the communication is just not there. On top of it, it I would take if I'm taking a guess, looking at this from you know 100 feet back. They're trying to do too many things in a limited amount of scope. And so making a golden, this is the best way to do UX type of process where really you need something quicker and dirtier so that you can keep doing it faster 
show utility, get the PM off your back type of thing. So it's a, it's a tough situation for both people, I would imagine. All right. I'm going to get into this next one here because uh, I promise you that first one is very long, but these next two are pretty short. So uh, this next one here is from Akoi Zemini on the user experience subreddit. This is, so I need real world experience, but I'm having trouble getting it. Where do I find places to do free work for people in UX design or for that matter, human factors? Are there any subreddits or websites I can gain real life experience with. I want to do an internship, but I can't get hired to do any internships yet because I don't have a lot of real world experience. So I was told that the best thing to do is to work for free for various people and companies, build my portfolio up, and then seek out an internship later when I have at least two years of experience. So if there are any places or subreddits that allow free work to be posted, I would really appreciate it. Sorry if this is a stupid question. No questions are stupid. Uh, thank you very much to anyone who takes the time to answer this. Oh, you're very welcome. I appreciate it. Blake, thank you for taking the time to answer this. What do you think? Okay, I got four things wow. that you can do. I said right? make it short. I'm just kidding. Go. So you can get, you can <laughs> scour Reddit, the UX subreddit. I got my first ever job as a UX designer working with a mobile app developer that way, just doing the work and saying, hey, I did this thing. Let's talk about it. Uh, there is a a dot or a nonprofit called designing gigs for good.org. And it is literally a place that nonprofits post job offerings for doing design work or getting involved in design stuff. They have a slack. It's a great place to go for that kind of stuff. Uh, there is another really great kind of slack community for designers specifically called the design X community. It's just another place you can go and try and get people to, you know, help you out, figuring out getting your first design job, getting some experience. The last thing that I will mention is it's called Amazing Design People's List, adplist.org. It's an organization that, again, lets you get connected with a lot more designers. And I've had a lot of success with students being able to find people to work with on collaborative projects. So it's, there's a lot of different resources out there. Reddit is a great one. And then there's, we just listed three more that can help you, if not find that first gig, start building that network that could, you know, help you find that first free job or whatever it may be. Let me jump in with the networking thing, because that's what I was going to lead with. Yeah, networking is huge. Uh, if you go to a conference um, and mention to somebody that you're looking for work, chances are they'll uh, know somebody who can put you in touch with somebody else that maybe you don't need that extra work to get hired. You might even be able to bypass the whole process. Second, uh, I was going to mention to reframe what you've already done as experience. I'm sure you've worked on something in a classroom for a project uh, as a team. Those skills transfer outside of the classroom. Make sure that you're communicating that when you go up for one of these internships and say, look, I've done a project like this. It was in a classroom setting, but here are the skills that I learned from it. And these are the outcomes, you know, and, and um, I think, you know, everything that Blake said is, is good too. I'm going to keep this answer short, but I, I think networking, so you can bypass this entire process because I think two years of experience with real world thing. It's that whole, why, <laughs> why do free work? I don't know. It's, um, anyway, it's not a stupid question. I think, uh, you know, reframing your current experience could help a lot with that too. 
Okay, one more, Blake. You ready? Let's go. All right. How to go through an absurd amount of qualitative material. This is by Suspicious Asking on the user experience subreddit. Hello, everyone. After crawling through some reviews on some competitors, I wanted to code and understand keywords, most frequent complaints, and overall feelings of users, but how I found myself, uh, but now I found myself with more than 5,000 lines of content on Sheets, and all of them have somewhat long comments. I was searching through some tools and was wondering if any of you have any tips of software methods to go through all this content. Thank you, Blake. Wow. Yeah. If you've already got keywords and stuff like that, that might be helpful just to analyze, you know, that alone to, to give you an understanding if you can start chunking the data. Because if you have 5,000 lines of content to deal with, if you've already got some stuff like keywords or most frequent complaints and stuff that's already chunked for you, finding some patterns within there is going to be the easiest thing. I'm a big fan of just Excel for this kind of stuff. I don't really use any kind of fancy tools or anything like that. But ultimately, the deal becomes you want to probably work with more than just one researcher if you have access to them because 5,000 pieces of content, it's a lot to go through. I would divvy it up between other researchers and other teammates and be looking for themes that you you all can come up with based off of what is important to either your users, your product goals, or your business goals. And again, use what you already have at your disposal to get you some idea of what all the data is related to. Yeah, I would say this kind of goes back to the other question that we answered of how much UX is too much. And I think understanding what the ROI, return on investment, is for um, this specific task of looking through all this data. What are you going to get out of it? How important is it? If it is very important, you can take that to management and have them justify a fancy tool that will go through and look and analyze these things for word bubbles. Although, I will second Blake's uh, opinion that I usually use Excel for this too. I don't typically analyze things bit by bit. 5,000 lines, it seems like a lot, but honestly, if you're pouring through data, that's not that much. Um, If they're looking... If you're looking through just the comment section, hopefully, if you've created this, you've set it up to where you can understand the comments in the context of something. Otherwise, if they're just general comments, it's a little bit more difficult. Um, But if you're looking through them, then you can start to pull out themes. And that's what I do, is I I look through comment sections. First off, when I build surveys or um, build usability studies, I build in comments for everything. So that way, if they have any additional comments, they can comment there so I know the context of that comment Um, and then I leave a general thing at the very end if there's anything catch-all right and so if you're looking for specific things um, then you have at least those categories that you can start with uh, and look for themes within those categories but if you're just going off of one column then just just glance over it and you'll start to see themes emerge pretty quickly if you read you know every tenth thing or um every long comment and if they're all long then just read a couple of them and i mean you'll start to see themes and then you just go through and categorize a couple to where you've seen enough and go okay yes these are my themes got it um anything else blake that's perfect man that's exactly what they would have to do (laughs) all right uh let's get into one more thing it's been a minute since you and i talked i want to know what's going on in blake's world what's your one more thing oh man one more thing i've finally like kind of cracked the code on how I learned stuff. Um, and I, I stole it from how somebody taught me to learn how to code. So I've been struggling for a long time understanding guitar theory and like 
music theory in general, but based mainly how it applies to the guitar. Um, and I didn't really know how to go about learning it. I've had various guitar teachers and stuff like that, and it's not been super successful for me. But what I kind of like happened upon is when I was learning to code, it was a lot about like, yeah, I, I took like a coding boot camp, but it was more about building when I found a platform that I liked, it was the fact that I got to the point where I didn't need to watch whatever video. I could just see what the prompt was for the code and I could build the thing. And then if I did that and I wanted to do something else with it, taking the time and like pushing the course aside and going and doing something extra and then going up and looking up documentation for something else I wanted to do. So like taking the basic skills and then expanding upon them has been something that's really helped me become a better front end developer. So I started doing that with a, with learning guitar music and, guitar theory basically and one thing that helped me do that was building a small application that was a it's basically a random note generator that gives me exercises to do every day and so it's finally allowed me to understand because i know all the notes on the fretboard and i like spend a lot of time coding it and have like the the circle of fourths and all that kind of stuff integrated into it it combined two ways that i learn using tech and performing an action to really just give me another way to appreciate music and appreciate technology together. So it's been a fun couple of weeks, I guess, for me while we haven't been podcasting. Awesome, dude. I could go on and on and on about how moving sucks. I'm going to talk about something else because I feel cool. like I talked about that last time. I'm going to talk about gap blockers. Um, so gap blockers are these little like plastic shields that uh, you put in a gap. So think about like your couch where... You might not want your toddler to um, roll a car underneath it, or you don't want your cats getting under your bed, or you don't want dirt and uh, food to get under your couch or something like that. You buy these gap blockers that uh, you sit in about you know three inches or so just behind um, the feet of whatever it is that you're trying to block, and it blocks things from going in. So we, we you know, my son has these cars that you wind up. And they go, right? And, uh, you know, we'd have to frequently, like, unhook the couch and pull it out and sweep <laughs> under the couch because all of his goldfish and stuff are down there. And then, like, you know, pull out the cars and all his toys. We installed these things on Monday night. And now there's no gap in between the, the – there's a gap in between the floor and the couch. And we blocked it. So that way, if anything tries to get under there, we just pick it out. It's like three inches. It's, it's life-changing. That sounds amazing. Uh, life changing. <laughs> and it keeps like, depending on how tightly you make the connections, right? It keeps like dust and trash and everything out from underneath. So theoretically, you shouldn't need to, you know, get under there unless you're deep cleaning and getting out all the dust, right? And you only probably need to do that once every couple months, especially if nothing's getting under there. It's fantastic. I can't go on about it enough. Um, that sounds amazing. That could change my life with the amount of dog hair that Chewie sheds. And yeah. Escapes under the couch and then it shows up three months later like another dog. It's terrible. No, no kidding. All right. Well, that's going to be it for today, everyone. Let us know what you guys think of the news story this week. You can hang out with us on our Slack or Discord. Get to us on any of our social channels. Like I said, we do post other news stories there. Uh, you can visit our website, sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date with all the latest Human Factors news. If you like what you hear, you want to support the show, there's a couple ways you can do that. One, leave us a five-star review it's free for you to do and it really helps the show uh like comment subscribe to whatever thing you're watching us on right now follow do all that it really helps the algorithms kind of help uh other people like you find the show 
Uh, two, speaking of other people finding the show, tell your friends about us. That really helps. Word of mouth, I can't tell you how many people said they heard the show, uh, heard about the show from somebody else. Please tell your friends. Um, and three, if you like what we're doing and want to support us financially, consider supporting us on Patreon. And actually, you're supporting us, but you're also helping others um, listen and enjoy the show uh, for those who maybe can't listen. You know, transcribing those podcasts takes a lot. As always, links to all of our socials and websites are in the description of this episode. I want to thank Mr. Blake Arnstor for being on the show today. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about flying aircraft? You guys can always find me in the Human Factors cast Discord or Slack at Blake, I'm pretty sure is what it is, and then across social media at Don't Panic UX. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me streaming on Twitch Tuesdays at 1 Pacific. That might change for office hours and across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning in to Human Factors Cast. Until next time, it depends. depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organisations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.